see yourself in the world, picture the person you wish you were in that room, and fucking run with it. I was talking to clients and their kids would barge in or their cat would walk across the screen. What is it with cats wanting to show their asses to the world on, on Zoom? It's ridiculous. Welcome to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Graham Drew, and Michael Knox. Two rather insecure frauds who will be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower, if you let it. You know, that feels back and it feels big and it's wonderful. I think ultimately the currency of being creative is, is, is about relevance. Jane Carrow, welcome to The Imposterous and thank you very much for making time for us today. Um, you know, for our viewers, it's the day after an election has been called and we will get to that. Mm, That's a very exciting topic. The imposterous has this ambition to kind of blow up self-doubt and insecurity and fraudulence and all subjects like that. But I wanted to tell an imposterous story of my own that involves you. Many years ago, I was working on something very important. It was either the Woman's Weekly or the Woman's Day, I can't remember. And I was working with an art director and we were a few days into it. um, And she said, I wish I was working with Jane. She would have cracked it by now. But look, I've moved on. I've moved on since those since those feelings of not being quite up to it to a point now where I'm asking you the questions and I wanted to ask you about advertising. I'm just interested in what it taught you uh, and the importance of kind of ambition and people and leadership and even, you know, as you march towards a date of May 21, pitching. Mm. Um, I guess it's a, a constant pitching and what, what benefits there are in advertising and what you learn in the walls of good agencies. Oh, I learned an enormous amount, I, I think. But one of the things I think I learned more than anything else that it really surprised me, actually, I, I, I so knew it that I actually thought everybody knew it. And I think that's the thing when you actually have absorbed something totally into yourself, you don't realise that actually most people don't know what you know. And it it first came to me how exclusive this really was to advertising when I was um, first appearing on the Gruen Transfer and people were so astonished about it. And that was, I just assumed that if you were lucky enough to get a chance to communicate to people more than just one-to-one, you had an obligation to be engaging, to engage them, to be interesting, to be worth listening to, to do something that would pique their interest, make them look, make them listen, make them pay attention. And to do that, you really had to understand them and you had to empathise. And I realised that that was unusual, that most people still thought and perhaps still think that all you do is you present the information and then the person who has received it has taken it on board. And, of course, we all know that's not remotely true. So that was one of the most important things I learned, that it is my job to engage my audience, to get them to be entertained, interested, uh, curious, and then present the information when they're ready to receive it. Um, it would seem like the bleeding obvious perhaps to, perhaps to most people in advertising, but no, it's not, and most people don't bother to do it, which is why so many people are so dull. Um, so that was a really good one. The other thing I think I really learned was about being succinct and getting to the point. Because when you work in an industry, and, I mean, I've always been a writer, where every word costs money either on the page in terms of space or on the air in terms of time, you learn to be extremely (laughs) economical 
uh, not waste a word. And you get to the point. And I think it's quite interesting that of the people in the public eye have come from advertising, and I'm thinking of Dee Madigan and me uh, via creative in particular, and we're also women, so it's slightly less acceptable for us to be this way. We're often told we're very blunt, very uh, outspoken, uh, forthright is what we're called. I actually think we're just getting to the point. We're just getting to the point. And people are much more used to women in particular dancing around the point, making sure that everybody's happy before you dare say your point. And I don't bother with that very much anymore. I did hear you talk about the importance of, of diversity. You, you were talking about diversity and the richness that it brings in your early days in advertising, being part of a department that actually had that kind of baked in to it and, and, and what that actually brought to the, to the fore. Yeah, it wasn't in my early days that it had it baked into it. In the early days in my advertising career in the 1980s, it was very non-diverse. It was straight white blokes, you know. If you were not a straight white bloke, nobody knew uh, because you could hide that. But uh, anything else wasn't there much because you couldn't hide it. Um, so that was a lack of diversity, really. Uh, but by the time the, the the place that was different was when I worked at Saatchi's um, in the 90s and early 2000s when Mike Newman was the creative director. And Mike um, was a, a very good creative director, I think, to some extent, underrated by the industry, not only because he was a good creative, particularly in print, he was an excellent uh, print copywriter, but he also was the sort of creative director, and these are the very best ones, uh, where he hired, interestingly and widely, and he hired people he respected and thought were good at their job, and then he left you alone to get on with it. Gosh, that's a good thing to do particularly if you've got smart people working for you. Um, and so in that creative department at its height when I was there, there were uh, I think almost half the department were women, which is very unusual at that period. Jonathan um, Tao, uh, Singaporean Chinese, worked there. Uh, Matt Eastwood, who was out then as a gay man, and that was a big risk for Matt at that time, but he was out to his eternal credit. Uh, he was there, and, yes, it was um, a much more diverse group of people, different ages as well because we forget about uh, ageism when we talk about diversity. Uh, we're obsessed with youth. We think anyone, any woman over 45 is past a prime, any man past 50 who hasn't reached the managing director's office is a waste of space, and that is just pure prejudice like any other. And, and the, there was a lot of that. So that was the sort of high point. I didn't see that sort of diversity afterwards and I've never seen right. it before. Um, I hope it's better now. Right. I wanted to also then leap from, from that notion of diversity and, and, and belonging to that to this idea of confidence because we talk a lot about confidence here. Am I right in thinking um, in, in what I, and how I've heard you speak about this that um, you, you take the, the privileged position that you're actually in as an opportunity to, to stand up and speak from that place? It's not so much... It's not so much about a guilt of that privilege, but it's more about it has given you the opportunity to have a voice for the vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, it's not guilt, it's obligation. It's right. responsibility. I recognise that my privilege is more luck than good management. I was born to highly educated, intelligent, uh, economically secure parents uh, in a loving family. You know, uh, that's a, that's, that was just sheer good luck. 
I, I didn't do anything to earn that or deserve it. Just lucky. Um, there's a saying, isn't there, a member of the Lucky Sperm Club? Well, I suppose I was. I'd like to think lucky over them as well. So that, but with that luck, sheer blind good luck comes, and I was brought up to believe this, comes an obligation and a responsibility to do the most you can to spread that luck to those people who perhaps weren't as fortunate in the lottery of birth as you were, not to do what I see so many people doing now, trying to hold on to it grimly and not share it with anyone else. It's almost right. as if there's only so much, you know, good life around and you have to hold on to your slice of it or you'll become one of the losers. I think this is neoliberalism, which does that dreadful thing of dividing people into winners and losers, and I utterly reject that as any kind of way of looking at other people. Our first guest in this series is an advertising guru you'd recognise from the Gruen Transfer. She's a columnist in The Sunday Life. She's a feminist commentator. She's unlikely to be on Alan Jones's Christmas card list after spearheading the Destroy the Joint movement. And she's also an author of many books, including a series of young adult books about the Virgin Queen. And it's her interest in that particular topic that we are going to be discussing tonight. Please welcome Jane Caro. Thank you. Now, Jane, you're a staunch Republican... Mm -hmm. And you have a passion for one of Britain's most famous royals. How did that start? I think, I don't really know. I don't remember a time when I wasn't obsessed with Elizabeth I. When I was five or six, I thought she was amazing. You grew it, up in the UK, so you would have been living there at the time. Well, yeah. we came here when I was five, okay. just before I turned six. So I call myself Australian by choice and English by accident. But I think there were some old encyclopedias in my bedroom when I was young. And you talk about that giving you like a, or eliminating fear. It, it's kind of like takes away this idea of fear and what fear can actually do insofar as holding us back. And I want to ask you if you're fearful of success. Is there a point where you go, <laughs> you know, is, is it better to have a problem to solve than a, than a celebration to be part of? Oh, everybody's fearful of success. Um, I, I think, you know, that old cliche, you bite off more than you can chew and you chew as hard as you can, but some, everybody worries they'll choke. Um, none of us know. And that's the thing about trying to do something you've never done before. You can't possibly know if you're going to be able to do it, but that's the whole point. Um, fear's a good thing. Fear's not a thing to be avoided. Fear's a, a thing to feel and do it anyway. Um, fear gets your adrenaline pumping. Fear gets your um, your synapses firing. It gets your... Um, as long as it's healthy fear, if it's mm. that kind of horrible, um, toxic, terrified that you're going to be humiliated or lose your job or anything else, then it's useless and it's actually damaging and it holds people back so that they won't take any risks. There's a good fear, which is usually where no one else is putting the pressure on you, you're putting it on yourself to try something new, to get out there, do something you've never done before. But I don't think I eliminated fear because I came from a place of privilege. I think I was able to eliminate fear eventually, partly because I came from a place of privilege, but actually I eliminated fear by giving in to fear. I stopped fighting it. I decided that it was okay to be afraid and that I would feel what I needed to feel. And if I needed to feel afraid, then I would go ahead and feel afraid. And the funny thing is I discovered that it's generally fear of fear that is the crippling kind. And so once you say to yourself, oh, yeah, I'm afraid of that, but that's okay. 
it's not going to kill me to be afraid. That lessens the fear. And yeah, so it's about it's about acknowledging then, right? It's acknowledging that this this fear is what's driving me forward. It's part of it's part of going into something new. And, and it's human to be afraid of things you haven't tried and that you're testing yourself. And we are very hard on ourselves often. We don't allow ourselves permission to feel what we've decided are negative emotions. But of course, I don't think they're negative. They're they're emotions. Feel them. And are you are you happiest? expecting more are you a comfortable challenger is that what I, I i wonder about creativity and and kind of like how we go about finding answers to solve marketing problems and that's kind of taking this down i don't want to take this down but it's kind of like to to find the problem to to find a problem to solve are you happy doing that happiest doing um that? I'm, I'm happiest once i've solved it <laughs> The moment of once I've got the idea I really like, uh, that's when I'm happiest. Um, in the trying to solve it, now that I work for myself, now that basically I don't answer to anyone else, I don't answer to creative directors or clients. Or I once worked out how many layers of approval the average ad had to go through when I was writing them, um, and it was sixteen, which is ridiculous. You can't get anything creative out of that many layers of approval. Um, you know. So uh, that was hard because you're not just trying to please your own creative instincts and your own understanding of your job. You're trying to wonder what all these other people are going to think about it, which is an absolute pain in the ass and waste of time. Now that I just solve my own problems to my own satisfaction, there's a lot less fear in, involved in that actually because it feels more like I'm just thinking and nutting it out myself. There's actually more fun in it. But when I'm struggling with a problem, say, in a book I'm writing or um, whatever it might be, mm. um, I'm not going to say I love it. I feel frustrated. I think, can I come? I've got all the insecurities everybody has. Can I solve this problem? Am I smart enough? Is this problem solvable? All the questions we ask ourselves where we're, while we're struggling with it. But at least I don't generally ask myself anymore. Will so-and-so like it or will they approve of this solution? I just think about whether it works for me. Um, and the moment I come up with something and think, oh, shit, I think that might do That's the beautiful moment. That's the, that's the actual moment where you want to go running around the house and grabbing my poor husband and saying, yeah. what if I did this, you know, and share yeah. it because you, you've cracked it. And I suppose it's like any other moment of um, achievement and delight. Uh, you feel the more joy you feel, the greater degree of difficulty. So the harder you've had to struggle, the more fun it is when you actually solve it or at least your own satisfaction. Um, so you need the struggle to have the delight. And so do you find it, and we, we've had this conversation a couple of times, do you find it then a, a lonely job, whatever no. that job is? No, or I don't you, particularly or, or find you're, it you're, lonely. You're, kept company by the ideas that you need and the problems you want to solve and the thoughts you want to have. That's the I think so. Well, it's so different now because when, when I worked in advertising in a creative department with an art director, I love that. I love the collaborative process and I'm a good collaborator. I'm not, it doesn't have to be my idea. It just has to be a really good idea. Um, the best times I worked with people, we'd come up with a solution and work it all through and everything and by the end of it, we couldn't remember whose idea it originally was. You know, we we came up with it together and that was wonderful. That's when I knew the relationship was like absolutely humming along and it wasn't about ego, it was about solving the problem. And 
So I love that. And I've co-written a number of books and I've always enjoyed that process working with another author. My fiction, I've always written on my own. And I really enjoy that too. But then you get the editing process and people, I didn't realise until I started writing fiction in particular, just how valuable editors are to the process. And, of course, they're your collaborator. And I never, I've I've had a whole book rejected. So, I mean, I know what it's like to not get it right. Mm. And editors will always come back to me and say, this is working and this isn't. And I always accept what they say because I assume that they've got my interests and the book's interests at heart and unless there's a real reason why I think, no, 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 they haven't understood, I don't push back. And they're not like clients. They're not business people approving creative work. They're actually people whose whole joy in life is about creative work and creative writing and products of imagination. And so they're extremely sympathetic collaborators. So, no, I don't find it lonely at all. I yep. um, I enjoy both, working with someone and sitting at my desk slamming out a yep. chapter or an article. Well, Jane Caro is a woman who has always had her finger on the pulse and certainly talks about some of the biggest, most controversial issues facing society. She's an award-winning journal, she's a speaker, social commentator, she's a very talented woman, and she's talking about a very important subject, domestic violence in this book. Yeah, it's her first fiction book, so plenty of non-fiction books over the years, but this is a a novel called The Mother, uh, and it very much touches on that issue of our time in domestic violence. Uh, Miriam, she's recently widowed, and she's seen her, her daughter get married and some big changes just go take place in her life. Yeah, it talks about um, when the law fails you. What do you do? You take law into your own hands and also picking up on red flags and changes in your kids yeah, as well. Yeah, what do- people are missing and how you deal with and how, how do you help your kids as a mother when you can see that life is going wrong? This is, um, this is a hard topic yes. but a really easy read because Jane really draws you in and I think um, a pretty important book of the times. Yeah, it's your QBD Fiction Book of the Month for March. On the shelves now at QBD. I wanted to talk about over the next few days as you find yourself on this roller coaster ride to a to a federal election, a Senate seat. And I was listening to, um, you know, you, you kind of, I find myself doing strange research. And this isn't all that strange, but um, I was listening <laughs> to a conversation between Theresa May and Julia Gillard, and they were talking about the fine line that exists um, for women in politics oh. between empathy and strength, and that they were judged as either being too emotional or too tough and had to keep themselves in check at all times, even, even at the end, um, and how um, they were perceived and how, how much that plays into confidence or how you are perceived and women feeling comfortable about themselves and, and, and their perception. Um, how does that affect how you're judged, do you think? I gave up worrying about how I was judged quite a long time ago. Maybe that was having been in advertising for so long and everything gets right. judged so many times and so minutely on occasion um, that I just got kind of immune to it. Um, I also came to a realisation a long time ago that there was no right way to be a woman. It doesn't matter what you do, you're always wrong. It's exactly what Theresa May and Julia Gillard are saying. You're either too weak or too... You're too something, right? You're always too something. You're always too something, too quiet or too noisy too assertive or too submissive or too, you know, always. And so I realised that it was a waste of time trying to find that magic formula where suddenly people go, ah, now you've got it right. You know, that wasn't going to happen. 
And so I just decided if I was going to be always wrong, I'd be wrong in entirely my own way. And so I just am me. I just do say, behave in the way that I want to, that I feel I think. And I let people, I long ago gave up trying to control what I couldn't control. And I can't control how, for example, someone listening to this podcast is going to react to what I have to say. I can't control that. And I'm not going to try. I'm just going to answer your questions as honestly and straightforwardly as I know how. And the person who listens to it eventually, they can decide whether they agree or disagree, whether they like me or hate me. That's up to them. And so I just worry about the inputs. Who am I? What am I saying? What do I believe? Why do I believe it? Get your research done, you know, that kind of thing. And then I let it go. And people will respond the way they respond. And so that's worked really well. People seem to mostly like that. Some people can't stand me. I really irritate them and ruffle their feathers and they just find me obnoxious on every level. Some of those just don't agree with me politically, but some of them it's different. It's it's almost a personal antipathy. I can't help that, you know, too bad. Mm. Sorry, guys. You know, if you don't like me, you don't. Most of them, there are a few women. Um, if you don't like me, that's fair enough. You don't have to like me. There's no obligation. I, I will draw the line at you abusing me or being deliberately rude or nasty. That You don't need to do that. Just scroll on by. Just go listen to someone else. And I think the problem for a lot of politicians, and I think it's revealed in the Theresa May, Julia Gillard conversation, is they are trying to control how people mm. respond to them. My view is that really fucks you up. And it actually leads to the worst of all outcomes where people judge you as fake or stiff or robotic Mm. or ill at ease. Better they don't like you but they think you are who you are than that. Better to be hung for being yourself than for being the person your minders or your spin doctors told you you ought to be. And I think that's one of the mistakes a lot of people make. They think they're improving themselves. This is the secret of the universe, in my view. You're fine just the way you are. Don't get thinner. Don't have to be younger. Don't have to be prettier. Don't have to be smart. None of those things matter. You're fine just the way you are as long as you believe it. In fact, it's when you accept your bedrock equality with every other human being who's ever been born that you're no better or worse. I used to say to my children all the time, There's nothing special about you. You are no better and no worse than anyone else. And uh, to me, that's as soon as you kind of believe that, you just Mm. go out there and be yourself. You're entitled. You're just a person and you don't have to win. If somebody else has a better idea, good for them. You don't have to take that on board. It wasn't good enough. Yeah, there's a lot of peace in that. Huge amount. And that's where confidence comes from. Confidence comes from the recognition that you can stuff up, do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, make a mistake, transpose numbers. I do that all the time. Very dangerous. Um, standing for politics. I've got no head for <laughs> They don't stick in my head. And that, that's forgivable. I wanted to ask you, and um, just to wrap this up, because you've got a busy, how many weeks ahead? Five six and a bit weeks, six, six weeks. Six, six weeks ahead. That's a long time. Um, Already okay. done, seven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay, well, we're, we're into the second half. 
And this is a question regarding social media to wrap mm. this up. And I asked my daughter this question about TikTok recently, and she said to me, you plan on getting down with the kids, Dad? Yeah. And I asked her because, because I had seen that um, TikTok will decide um, this election. And I wanted your opinion on whether you think technology has a role of making us feel like imposters or whether it's technology that's going to make us all feel like we fit in. Really interesting. Technology has given a lot of people and a lot of groups unmediated access to the public conversation for the first time in history. Mm. I think it's no coincidence that women have suddenly risen so quickly and are being heard so loudly. I fought for all the things that are happening now for so long and I couldn't get anyone to pay any attention. Now all of a sudden everybody's a bloody feminist. Even some of the men I remember from the day certainly weren't. But now they are. Now they are. Everybody's a feminist. Um, hashtag can change your life. Yeah. But I think it's actually because women started to be able to speak about their lives without having to get some male editor somewhere to say yes. I can remember putting forward articles and things and being told, oh, we did women last month. You can't do women last. Still happens, mind you. I did get a my my latest novel is doing quite well. It's a bestseller, and they're touting it for TV and film rights. And that's mother. Somebody, yeah, the mother. And somebody uh, in America knocked it back. Very nice knockback, but loved it. Loved it. Thought it was great. But they're already doing a project about a mother. You can only have one mother at a time. Is you know, let's get real girls. Um, it's bizarre, but there's still a bit of that. But I think um, I think that social media is actually, um, like everything else, a force for both good and evil. So the good side of it is LGBTQI people have been able to get a real voice. I don't think that Ireland, for example, would have um, legalised same-sex marriage mm. long before Australia did or make abortion both legal and free without the outpouring of voices. I don't think Hash Me Too could have happened without um, uh, social media. So I think there's been some really people of colour are able to tell us about their experiences and their lives in a way that is unfiltered that we've never been able to see or read before. Older people are able to talk about how they disappear and are invisible. Um, older women are extremely active on social media, particularly um, Twitter. I love Twitter. That's my favourite because I'm a wordsmith. That's my job. And, hey, 140 characters, luxury when you're a copywriter all your life, so you've sort of been trained uh, for Twitter without realising it. But it also has unleashed... For every action, of course, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So all the all the opening up, the, the, the end of silencing for a whole lot of groups in our community who are able to um, mm. express themselves in ways no, we've never heard before, literally in history never heard before, which is revolutionary, are getting huge pushback against those people for whom this is quite terrifying. They don't want to hear about women's lives and the oppression of color, uh, people of colour or what it's like to be a trans person. Uh, they, this frightens them and terrifies them. And there's a really interesting theory called social dominance theory, which says that there is always in human society a group that are at the top and dominate everything. Right. And in um, Western societies in particular, it tends to be white, private school educated blokes, and that they are feeling very threatened because they are losing their dominance. And that is happening because of social media, I think really splintering and shattering the hierarchy of the media. 
which has become less and less relevant um, in comparison to how it was when I was working in advertising agencies, for example. So this is going on all over. That's the other thing. That's that's what's happening with renewables. Renewables are exactly the same. Um, if you can get your power from the sun and the wind um, and the stream at the back of the paddock, you don't need to have great big companies at the top that control all of the oil and the, you know, coal yes. and all of that. It becomes splintered and shattered and the hierarchies are lost. This is why the people who are at the top, this is why women are rising up and saying, those blokes up there are stopping progress. Can we get rid of them, please, because they're really in our way? They've had it too good for too long and now they're assholes. off. That's what's going on. It's happening mm. in the media. It's happening in renewables. And uh, it's happening with the relationships between people as well. So I find this quite hopeful, but we're going to have to pull it off. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, I I think, um, Jane, over the next few weeks to see what role that actually play, those channels play, those digital channels play um, in this election and giving, you know, people like yourself the voice. um, Well, because we've got no money. I mean, the the left has been stitched up um, ever since Howard changed the Charities Act so that they can't, donate money, for example, they can't advocate for a particular political candidate that they agree with or even political solutions. Unions uh, all have to be non-aligned. You know, all the areas where on the left you would try to seek support, public support, have been closed down. So those of us who are operating on the progressive side of politics find it extremely hard to get the resources we need to do the usual mainstream kind of paid media stuff. Thank God for social media. Because mm. we can do that. And I think that's another reason why we've seen the rise of the independents because they have a way of getting their voice out that they never had before. Fantastic. Thanks very much for joining us on The Imposterous today, Jane Caro. We wish you all the best and we'll keep in touch over the over the next few weeks. Thank, Thank you. you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It was fun. See yeah, ya. great. Thank you. Bye. Good luck. very much for listening to The Imposterous. Apart from our fine, imposterous guests, none of this would have been possible without the help of the following wonderful frauds. Firstly, Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, best music and sound house in Australia. Without his help, this would have been a series of WhatsApp messages with emoji responses. And also Hilton Moday, who has graced us with his theme music that you're listening to now. If you would like to catch up on all the other podcasts in The Imposterous series, visit theimposterous.com. Here you can also get in touch with us via email.